Yes to community. Race, history, and the politics of education. The fight is not just about this AP course. The fight is against the strong uprising of racism from people who are seeing the shifting of America. What's in, what's out, separating facts from the fears. Who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? We don't need the course rework. There's been a conglomerate of college academians that have worked to put this course together. The battle over posting bond, a plan for progress shelved. Just cycling people back out on the street if they can commit additional crimes. The future of Florida law and order. Back from DC. A classmate, a friend, gone. With a win and a plan. We knew we must come in to make a change. The next generation, what they want you to know. Miami-Dade's mayor, fresh from the state of the county. The news, the views, and a few surprises, all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Welcome aboard. We begin with an epic clash over the history course that put Florida in the national spotlight this week. The blowback was fast and furious, even before details of the new AP Advanced Placement African American History course and the reason it was rejected became public. State administrators see violations of new law in the curriculum. Black leaders give voice to fears of a whitewashing of history and culture. That AP course is currently taught in a few dozen schools as a pilot rollout, but this week, College Board, the organization that creates AP curriculum, agreed to revisit the content and bring it back to the Florida Education Administrators to reconsider. State Senator Chevron Jones, Democrat repping parts of North and Northeast Miami-Dade now, tip of the spear for a gathering in Tallahassee this week that included threats of lawsuits against the state for the exclusion. Senator Jones, welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Glenna. So I want to get your sort of hindsight perspective. This all became part of Florida's current culture wars, really, even before anyone saw the actual syllabus. So have things changed now that details of what this course includes has come out? Well, Glenda, I don't think things have changed from the perspective of the governor and the Department of Education, because I think they were extremely clear uh, in the beginning uh, in what they said, and that the African-American studies bought no educational value uh, to students. But by mind you, 60 schools from across this country, two happen to be here within the state of Florida, um, have already piloted these programs, teachers, professors, uh, experts within um, uh, within the field of African-American studies. Uh, they have presented uh, everything to the department to show that uh, it was quality um, um, uh, information that students need, is that students who opt in to take this class should learn if they decide to take an African-American studies class. Yeah, so I, well, I wanna talk about this. I mean, there this has has been sort of in the middle of the political firestorm this week. And I want to try to come out of that 
politics perspective and take a look at this kind of factually because I mean there's no doubt the perception and fear is just like at crisis levels at the moment but but you just referenced the governor first said there's no educational value and I think that was sort of the trip of the hand grenade but then looking back the real story of why this was rejected was because of very specific and certain pieces of the curriculum that involved black queer study and um, writers who have been communist or Marxist without the other side included in the curriculum. And there are very specific things in there. And that actually does violate current state law. Love or hate the law, it is the law. And those things really do not comport with that. Is that a valid, a valid observation? I think it's a valid. I think it's a valid observation, but I also think it's important to point out in 1994, when we, when African American studies was deemed the law of the land here in Florida, and then fast forward to 2018 with Stop the Woke Act. Now you're refereeing how that same African American studies uh, should be taught. And I also want to make it clear that these themes in which the governor is talking about queer theory, Black Lives Black Matter movement, the um, the abolishing of jails, all of these things that the governor uh, put out came after the fact uh, because the, in, on the forefront of it is that the, the, the governor and the Department of Education, they said what they said, and that was the education that it brought no educational value. It wasn't until after the fact that they said that, oh, queer theory is in here, which violates the law. Black Lives Matter movement violates the law. And because they're trying to justify everything that they know is wrong for that shouldn't have come out in the first place. That That's why, I mean, to your point, that's why I'm saying this has become such a political hot topic that that it's sort of like the, the facts of it get lost in, in the soup. Um, so what I want to ask you is the Florida Department of Education actually does mandate black history studies. And I pulled the curriculum that is currently being taught. Um, there is black history, civil rights, black power movement. Um, there is the enslaved experience, uh, assessment of Jim Crow laws. Let me quote, quote it right out. Assess how Jim Crow laws influence life for African-Americans. Uh, writings by Malcolm X and Black Panthers. So I guess my question is, what currently is not being taught to Florida students that this course would would make good on? Well, Glenn, I think it's important to point out that um, during during a survey, it was shown that only truly only twelve counties in the state of Florida are actually teaching uh, Black history. Well, would that, uh, would that then be a violation of the state mandate, though? Absolutely, would be a violation of the state mandate. But as we know, the state is not um, uh, trying to figure out what counties are uh, teaching Black history and which what counties are not teaching Black history. And i.e., that's why we're here in square one. Mm. Um, the so let me go back to that question. Is is there aside from these twelve counties? I don't know what those twelve counties are. Maybe you do. Um, I know in South Florida, Dade, Broward, Monroe, those things are in the curriculum. It is, do you think, let me, let me pose the question this way, do you think Florida students, South Florida students, are ill-served or not being served by current curriculum? 
I think that students, whether you're talking about African-American studies, whether you're, ta whether you're talking about Jewish uh, uh, history, Asian history, uh, when you're not teaching students in the facts when you're, and not teaching them their history, I mean, as the old saying, they are bound to, um, to repeat it. And I believe that it's important that the ent entire story is told to our children, and especially when it comes to, to our curriculum. Remember, these curriculums are done by experts. Teachers come in um, to put together these curriculums. And so taking any part of a curriculum that has been vetted, that has been sought through um, by experts and saying, and, and politicians then deciding what should and should not be thought, um, taught. Yeah, I think it's insensitive, insensitive to the people who put the time and effort in to create these curriculums in the first place. And and some of them, at least one of them, a gentleman who works at Felix Varela High School, which we, we had hoped to get on the show, was part of, at least on the list of part of writing this curriculum. Um, so I, I just want to sort of get personal with you for a moment because because you have opened the door to that publicly um, over the last session when there were a lot of things that affected a lot of people very personally were being bandied about be it um, be the gay rights um, parental rights in school and all the educational curriculum you stood up you publicly gave some very personal accounts of yourself as a black gay legislator um, and then your colleagues voted to enshrine some laws and statutes right now, part of which we've been talking about for the last seven minutes. W what is your take on what's to come in this upcoming session? Well, I think uh, the governor has already given the tone and the tenor of what this uh, the next legislative next legislative session is going to look like. Uh, last year. We the attack on LGBTQ men and women. Uh, and while that was being done in one hand, the governor was given tax breaks to big corporations. This year, it looks like it's going to be an attack on black people. Uh, while they are also planning to continue to strip women's rights to choose and put further restrictions on cities and counties to be able to provide rent control for Floridians. Uh, so while they're dangling this carrot of culture wars, on the other hand, um, they're taking rights away from Floridians. And truth be told, it, I think everyone across this nation should be watching what's happening in Florida, because if it can happen in Florida, it can happen in Texas, it can happen in Tennessee, it can happen in Colorado. And so I think that what the governor and the Republicans are doing currently right now in the state of Florida, people should be paying close attention to. This legislative session will set the tone for the country. I can guarantee you that. Well, we, we actually are watching. Um, can you give us a couple of minutes? We are going to hit a commercial break. And we'll be right back. And I really want to do talk more about this curriculum. Stay tuned. talking with Florida State Senator Shevard Jones about the AP African Americans History course that was rejected by the state and the blowback that ensued this week. Senator, I wanted to ask you, um, you had tweeted uh, something about how some AP courses that were not rejected include uh, Japanese history, German, other European countries history, Italian history. Have you seen these, what's the plural of syllabus, syllabi? Have you seen the syllabi of those courses? Um, I have not seen the syllabus of, of those courses, but I do know that the syllabi of the course for the African-American studies, um, they use those other courses as a framework uh, to create the African-American studies uh, framework, talking, talking about it from, uh, from the very time of the existence up into present day. Uh, and so, yeah, they, again, they follow, they, there was a precedent for the uh, framework in which the African-American studies had been followed. 
And so now that College Board, um, which really has not been very vocal and public this week about what's to come, but did say that they would revisit this curriculum of this particular course, bring it back to Florida education administrators for reconsideration. Um, do you consider that, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How do you consider that? I appreciate that. So uh, the, the, college board, the college board actually wrote a letter to its members and they made it clear that on February 1st, which is the first day of Black History Month, that they were going to release the official framework for the AP African American Studies course. And they made it clear that they had they have worked and planned for this day for many months. And they're going to work to, to make sure they get the trust of the state of Florida and people from across the country. The college board is not new. They are not new to this either. And so that's why this whole idea and this whole concept that the state of Florida is moving in, talking about wokeism, talking about indoctrination, telling kids what they, uh, students what they can and cannot learn in an, in an opt-in course, is dangerous on, on the surface. And I think the college board even knows that. I don't believe the college board is going to, um, to change their curriculum because of the state of Florida. I just really, truly doubt it. So, so then what are they changing, as they say they are, for reconsideration. Well, the, based on the letter that came from the College Board, they just said that they're going to put out the framework because of the amount of time that the experts who were doing this curriculum that they put into this. This was almost a year worth of piloting that had taken place across the country with students and teachers and professors and experts. You can't have one person come who say, oh, well, I don't like this and say that it can't be taught. That's not how this works. You're not a dictator, uh, the authoritarian um, uh, regime type of thing that you're trying to do in Florida. It just, just doesn't work across the country. So the um, woke indoctrination, that, that has become, that's almost like this uh, political season's socialism, which was last political season. And, and those things have meanings, but they've sort of entered the political lexicon as, as criticism and rhetoric and kind of a, a baiting of sorts of people who, you know, we are a divided state, no doubt. So woke, I think, started out as kind of a compliment, people who are aware, newly aware of things. Um, indoctrination sort of is an interesting word because when you look at some of the, like when the governor looks or talks about black queer theory, Here's a man who has three little kids, and he speaks for a lot of people who see that and are afraid of what they don't know. So how do you get past that? Well, I mean, the hard part about all of this is you're right. The governor and the Republicans across this country, they're using terms like woke. They're using terms like indoctrination. Uh, indoctrination. Woke, to be particular, was a word that was used back in the 1930s and brought back up again in 2014 with the uprising of police violence. It was used to tell African-Americans to stay vigilant uh, about policies that were coming across um, from elected officials um, in, in different in different states and now it's being turned and um and, and many are making it a, a a term that is really rallying up a base where in actuality african americans or black people we still look at staying woke as what it is and us being vigilant about what's happening uh, across the country and i think it's dangerous what we're what we're seeing because it is truly taking us back into a time that we and i say we because black white jews gay straight all fought extremely hard to get us out of a time during the civil rights movement to the place we are in right now. But unfortunately,
unfortunately, we are regressing and black people, LGBTQ people are being the political punching bags for the governor to use on his rise to national power. I think the onus now falls a lot to Florida parents to teach their kids, which is actually a lot of what some of those laws have as a goal. Well, I don't disagree that parents should have a very uh, 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 should be have their hands in their child's education, but the parents send their children to school for a reason to be able to to explore what they're taught taught at home. And you're right, uh, there is a sense or opportunity for communities to start teaching African American studies within our own communities. But that does not give an ounce to the state to um, to reject AP African American studies for uh, for students to be able to explore uh, along in the in the world. Of academia. I think this week we um, we are able to see the rollout of whatever college board comes out next. So we'll be watching that. State Senator Chevron Jones, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. All right, next to jail or not to jail, the battle over bond reform and which accused criminals get to be free. The governor brought the debate to South Florida this week. We take it to the top next. back out on the street if they can commit additional crimes, that is not helping uh, these communities. Which accused criminals have to wait for their trials in jail and which get to be free during that process? You're probably thinking, well, that depends on the crime and flight risk, and that's true, but out on bond also currently involves whether someone can afford to pay that bond. This week, uh, Miami-Dade's criminal court community suspended um, a rollout of a reform plan that would address that and other issues after the governor in Miami voiced his opposition. Right there, Miami-Dade's administrative judge, Nushin Safi, has been working on that bail reform plan right here with us live. Your Honor, Nushin, great to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for having me. So the community hears the words bail reform and um, and gets a little skeptical. You've seen that. And so I want to take a moment for you to talk about what factually does this reform mean? Because the law is the law, right? You've got to follow the law. The law is the law, but I think, um, as I've said many times now to anyone who wants to listen, um, we don't refer to this as bail reform because we are not eliminating bail. That was never part of our proposal. And calling it bail reform, frankly, was, was number one, it's sort of a loaded term because it refers to a lot of what's been going on across the country. And that's not going on here in Miami. It's never been part of what our proposal was. So the elimination of bail. Um, it's just it's never been on the table and bail reform really didn't refer to what we were doing. What we were seeking to do, and frankly, uh, this is the most recent endeavor was a culmination of uh, honestly a decade long effort that started with my predecessor, Chief Judge Bertie Soto, and what was joined in largely by our assistant state, I'm sorry, our state attorney, Captain Fernandez Rundle, to address um, some of the deficits that the governor brought up. And very specifically that there are many people in this uh, state right now, certainly in Miami right now, that can get released on bond without seeing a first appearance judge. And these include people who are charged with crimes like DUI manslaughter, or burglary of a uh, home while occupied, or uh, aggravated battery with a firearm. Serious, serious murder. crimes, violent crimes. Clear, clear criminals, correct. And I think that 
you know, we were, we've been trying to address this issue because it's been a real concern for public safety as it stands. Public safety has always been the number one concern and bail was never going to be taken off the table. So it sounds like, I mean, you're, what you're saying almost sounds like you're making it stricter or more stringent, uh, but I know that there is a real money component because right now it's an affordability. Um, you know, justice isn't served if someone can't afford the bail. So, so talk, right now, yeah, talk our, about the financial our, component to this. So our, our current practice is focused just on the financial component in that when somebody is arrested, if they can afford to make the bail, they can bond out without seeing a first appearance judge. And that's without regard to their prior history. That's without regard to whether there's a victim in the crime. That's uh, without regard to if they have a history of failing to appear. It's focused just on whether or not they can make the bail or not. And what we were hoping to do and what we're planning on doing, and frankly, with the governor's proposals will hopefully um, assist us in doing is making better decisions and having more people go to first appearance hearing and see a judge so that the judge can make a determination based on um, not just their financial ability but frankly on the nature of the offense and the nature of their history if there's a victim involved the, the judge could consider maybe a gps monitor um, the judge can certainly warn the person to stay away from a victim there's a whole host of things that the judge would be able to do at a first appearance hearing in a lot of these situations that we currently don't get to do because people have the ability to bond out without seeing the first appearance judge. All right, so h help me through this because the governor came to town. It sounded like he was criticizing that kind of plan. My perception, and I'm not saying that's a fact, but that's what it certainly sounded like. And the governor launched his own plan, which will go through the legislature. And I, I just want to throw out some of his proposals, um, such as limited, limiting who is eligible for release before first appearance, making sure judges make the ultimate decision, require detention hearings prior to trial for dangerous crimes, um, and uh, uh, petition the Florida Supreme Court to establish a uniform bond schedule. So that's the plan, and it sounds like it's the same as what you're talking about. Help so, I mean, that. I think... I think part of what was going on was that, you know, I think the one thing that we could have done better and should have done better and will hopefully do better in the, in the you know, the weeks, months, you know, days ahead um, is to make the community understand what we were trying to do. Because you're absolutely right. The, the four main proposals the governor made were proposals that we were very specifically addressing in our plan. Now, number one thing he said is that there should be no elimination of bail. And as I've said all along, we were never going to eliminate bail. Bail would still be in the toolbox for a judge making the appropriate findings to make. Um, the governor said that more people should see a first appearance judge. They should not be eligible for release without seeing a first appearance judge. And that was honestly a hallmark of our proposed plan was to have a list of offenses. We had over 700 offenses on this list. Most of them are currently not on the list where the requirement for a first appearance hearing would be um, would be there. And then that's part of what the governor stated. He also stated that uh, judges should be the decision makers. And again, that's honestly very much a hallmark of what we were trying to do. We wanted more people to see a judge, not bypass the judge by just bonding out, because that way the judge can make meaningful decisions. And hope, our other hope was that with a public safety assessment, um, the judge would have just more information to make a very meaningful and important decision that would absolutely improve public safety. So, so you're not wrong. We're, we're very much in line, frankly, with what the governor's proposals are. So, um, 
Tell, tell me, help us kind of, where does this fit in with what a lot of skeptics and fearful community members call a revolving door? Um, you know, that's kind of a catchphrase and almost a cliche, but frankly, you know, we have covered people who have gone, have committed a crime, have gone to jail, have been released on bond, have gone back to the scene of the crime, committed another crime, and, and whether these are minor or major crimes, which probably happens in both accounts, this creates what people call a revolving door with criminals in the community. How does this fit in with this plan? So I, I want to say again that I think part of our um, messaging, we, we did focus so much on the major crimes. It wasn't that we weren't focusing on the minor crimes. I think that our uh, we should have under, let the community understand better what we were trying to do. Um, these are not small concerns. I don't want in any way the community to ever think that those are concerns that the judiciary or anyone else thinks, you know, the, certainly not the state attorney or anyone involved in this project thinks are small concerns. Those are serious concerns. And our plan was addressing those concerns certainly better than we currently do, which is that every single person who's arrested, even if it's a minor misdemeanor, um, would be assessed. And in many of those situations, based on the person's history, certainly if there were revolving door, um, you know, arrestee, that would be flagged and they would then be required to see a first appearance judge. So again, it's an improvement on our current practices, which, you know, do have somewhat of a revolving door. Um, and it would take into account, you know, not just the seriousness of the crime, but also if the person had a history of failing to appear. So again, it'd be one more piece of the puzzle. The other thing that we did is we engaged in this process, the Homeless Trust and um, the Thriving Minds Behavioral Health Network, which is our local mental health provider. And we had them at the table so that hopefully this revolving door person who's at first appearance, we could start at least trying to attempt to address the reasons why they're in this revolving door and maybe, you know, maybe cut it off. So uh, real quickly in the 30 seconds we have left, what now? You just wait for the legislative packages to be rolled out and see if, how that comports? We were we were honestly about you know three to six months away from really being ready to launch anything anyway. So we were sort of in a you know we were we were that's part of the reason why we didn't do you know better community messaging. And I welcome the opportunity now to do better with community messaging. But certainly we have to pause. The governor absolutely put you know put it out there to the legislature to to lawmakers, and we are law followers. We the judiciary, the prosecutor, the PD, everyone involved, law enforcement has been at the table. We follow the law. We don't make the laws. We work within the parameters of the law. So in the event that there are going to be new laws that are going to help us do our job and we're going to work within the parameters of those new laws and we're going to do the best we can to serve the people of Miami-Dade County. Judge Nushin Safey, Miami-Dade Administrator of the Courts, so good to see you and have you aboard. Come back soon. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, next, the young people get a seat at the table and they come with some winning ideas to address violence and terrorism. Stay tuned. A little something different this week on this program of news and newsmakers this week. The title belongs to this group of students from Pompano Beach High School. They come back from a visit to the Department of Homeland Security, right, in Washington, D.C., this week with a second place win for a plan to prevent violence by stopping its root causes. So we have Zoe Katz and we have Ali Vajalos. Vajalos, okay, I'm used to like the Spanish reading of it. <laughs> Zoe Katz, I can do. Uh, Zoe Katz? No, Crystal. Crystal, Crystal. You're Zoe, you're Crystal. Let me do this again just because.
because it's their first time on TV. So Zoe, yes. Crystal, Allie, and you have your own little supers on your shirt, which makes it very <laughs> easy. So um, anyway, it's great to have you here, and there's reasons for that, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. But first, I want to get a, this little prop that you brought here. What This is your winning project. Yes. So let's talk about what that is and and why it is, and um, and then we're going to broaden out this conversation for a little bit. Okay, um, Ali, do you want to? So in the box, you'll see. So let's see. I'll do. I'll be the. Um, <laughs> in the box. Okay. I'll be the presenter. Go ahead. In okay. the box, you'll see a a bracelet that we made for you. It has your name on it. Oh, thank you. As one of our so nice. matching ones. Yes. Oh, that's so nice. Okay. One of our tactics of our project that you'll find out about was making those with the elementary school students, and then those are some other cards and kindness cards that share Alyssa and her story and so Alyssa Aladeff we plan to take who yes. is one of the 17 victims at Parkland yes. and this was in Washington DC um, it was this project Crystal that you brought to um, I, I, it looked like the McCain Center mm -hmm. to prevent violence and domestic terrorism and what when you were in DC and this is kind of where I want to take this conversation because on this program we rarely hear young voices and it's really important to hear what you take away from DC and the sort of belly of the beast of politics did you feel at home there did you feel like you had a voice there yes I really did so when it comes to it your voice is your power so being able to go there and present our project and even meet with so many other individuals with other projects that are so important it was a great experience and it truly showed us that we have a voice and we're able to do something with that voice and we're hoping that what we did could share to other people watching and to the youth and really influence in a positive way. So as we look at some of the photographs of you with <laughs> the brand new Congressman Jared Moskowitz who was on this program I think just last week. Ellie, um, why do you think, let me, let me ask you this, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have you help us here. <laughs> we have one of the most engaged audiences for this program in South Florida. Really engaged, smart, interested people. Not a lot of people your age or even in their 20s. Why is that? What, what would make you want to watch this program or others like it? So as a student myself, I feel like staying involved and hearing about things your peers and other people around you are doing in your community, that's how you're going to make change. Do you watch? Do you ever watch this program? Yes. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Every morning. Okay, so hopefully your entire school does too. But that's so. And what do you, when you say that you have a, you know, it's important for the community, it sounds good. It does. You know, let's get real here. It sounds really good. Okay, we all want to be engaged. But you have lives and you do different things. And a lot of young people don't vote, right? Mm -hmm. They don't vote. Zoe, why don't young people vote? You're not old enough to vote just yet. <laughs> not yet. And, and that's, you know, and that's important to know because I sense that you will be voters. Oh, but a lot sure. of people don't. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's, what's really interesting is that in 2000, I want to say between 16 and 18, the youngest voters, the number of youngest voters mm -hmm. became the majority of voters. So if everybody voted, they get what they want, even right. more than baby boomers who are big voters. Mm -hmm. Why don't younger people vote? Um, I think that it's really important, um, especially with what we were doing with Bonding Buddies. We wanted to, you know, instill at a young age the importance of, you know, growing as a community and that kind of community living um, with our bracelets and with our activities. We You're not answering my question, Mama. <laughs> why don't people vote? Why don't young people vote? Why um, don't people feel like you so engaged? Why? Why? Um, I think maybe they don't feel um, involved. I think that maybe they need some more um, incentive 
need some more, um, they want to feel like it is about them. And I feel at our age, we are so involved in social media and involved mm -hmm. in that realm that if we're targeted in, in that realm, if we're, um, if we're, you know, we're talked to in that space, we're more likely to engage than, you know. That's, um, that's really insightful. And so, Crystal, the reason, I'm just going to guess based on what you've shown me here from your project, the reason you feel so engaged is because you live very close to the center of a, a catastrophe in our community. And, and so is this what made you plug in? Yeah, I would have to say this tragedy, it really brought all of us together to see something so heartbreaking happen so close to home. It, it hurt. It was, it was eye-opening. So seeing this, we wanted to get connected. We wanted to be part of that change, which is what MOSS is, what Make Our School Safe is all about. MOSS is, is the club, Make yes. Our School Safe. The Make Our School Safe's national mission is to empower students and staff to create and maintain a culture of safety and vigilance in a secure school environment. And with our initiative, that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> this Somebody really trained you well in those <laughs> <people, didn't they? laughs> That's You know, and that's important because as much as I joke, because you know what our job is here is to get beyond talking points and to yeah. challenge yeah. people. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really interesting that you have sort of taken to heart a, a club like that. Yeah. And so, Ali, was that the same experience for you? You personally plugged in because of this horrible moment in Yeah, so my sister was actually really close friends with Alyssa and her family lives in my neighborhood. So as one, we came all together to you know, make this change and to do this. And for me, that was my drive personally. And knowing her mom and everyone, they all pushed me into this. And I'm like thankful for that because the change that we can make as young people sets a model for everyone else to follow by. So, okay, so um, in the short time that we kind of have left, mm -hmm. I want you to help me okay. and our audience know how to involve people of the next generation. You will be inheriting the issues. Do we, I don't know if you were listening to our program prior to this segment. I mean, we talked about some really important things that are going to especially chart your lives in the next year. Um, how, do, how do they do that? How do you tell your peers how important it is to step up and be engaged and take the lead? I think, um, especially with our initiative, we, we kind of went to the, the prime time of where the kids are the most moldable, right? Where they're, um, you know, in their, their group environments, in their, you know, in, in their element and kind of show them how important it is to be involved, right? And uh, with how, our... How do you do that? Oh, uh, with our take, students... Take me really down into the details. With our students specifically, we were like really encouraging of getting people to be involved in our program, right? It's something that can change so many lives, especially like the little kids and, you know, seeing how they react, especially um, students in lower income housing, all of those kinds of things, kids that may not have as much attention, you know, bringing that attention from our students at Pompano and bringing it to them and helping them you know plant the seed that this is important and we're all one community and we all want to make a change and we all want to see a difference and crystal what do you think I agree with that fully I think being there and being able to instill these positive influences is really what's going to grow our community and have that positive influence in the next wave and in our next generation we are the ones that need to make that change and we do that by targeting where we grow where we are at the roots Ali last word I mean I totally agree 
like you said, to make this change, to make young people start voting, it starts at a young age by having our positive influence on younger students who don't have like as fortunate circumstances, that's where you're going to see the most change and that's where it's going to flourish. So I want you to know that as this program goes on, we're going to be bringing younger voices in and not necessarily to talk about a project, but to talk about issues. Um, if I invited you, would you feel competent to talk about something in the news right now? Give your perspective? Um, sure, yeah. Uh, as long as I told you what it was. Yes, first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of background. All right, thank you so much for being our, our first real young voices on this show. And I'm so appreciative that you watch, and, um, and I hope we'll see you again. Thank you so thank much you. for having us. Thank you for having us. All right, up next, May, uh, Miami Dade's mayor, fresh off the state of the county address, and a few surprises. The county address is a chance for mayors to tout accomplishments and frame plans and stage some optics for public consumption. Miami-Dade Mayor did that this week and the address had a few surprises to talk about and so Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, Miami-Dade is here live with us this morning. I feel like we just saw each other. Glenn, it's always great to see you. Thanks. You know, um, people will remember that you were here for our opening New Year's Day program, and uh, along with the mayors of Broward and of Monroe counties, and everybody sort of was on the very same page as affordable housing was the big gorilla in the room to accomplish and fix. And so your state of the county address this week talked a lot about that, but there was something really interesting, the Innovation Authority that you kind of launched out there with a splash nine million dollars in grant money for a lot of different things. Uh, I really want to start by talking about that. What is that? And that involves a lot of private money, too, uh, which bears some explanation. So have at it. Thanks so much, Glenna. And yes, we are so excited about this initiative, the Miami-Dade Innovation Authority uh, really sparked our interest in this approach when we visited Israel and saw a similar effort there. Uh, it is something that is a partnership of the government with the private sector and here with philanthropy to solve problems, to solve our biggest challenges, whether it's housing, transportation, climate, um, you name it. So and it Mm -hmm. So where, I mean, specifically, if you have $9 million, some of that actually is county money, I suppose, that the commission has to yes. approve. But how do you, where does that go? What's the steps of pot of yes. money to solution? What's in between? Yeah, the county is going to be identifying some of the biggest challenges that we face, some of the things I just mentioned, sea level rise, climate change, all of that. And then this authority will be able to use its expertise to determine which businesses which startups have great ideas to solve these problems and then they'll provide seed grants of a hundred thousand dollars each to to test these solutions and if they're effective then our county will be able to procure um, or change policy to accomplish uh, the, the solutions that have been identified through this process and so it's i'm sorry mm -hmm. it's which, innovation um, I I'm just I'm just full of questions. I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt. What is uh, who and what kinds of organizations will be getting this seed money? This is for companies that are uh, benefiting from some seed investment to be able to test the concepts. So whether it's 
uh, seawalls that are not surviving in the current environment and new construction approaches or uh, ways that we can build housing uh, more affordably, but it's a new process that needs testing. These will be seed grants to these companies to enable them to test them here in Miami-Dade County. Sounds almost like a shark tank, kind of a shark tank approach. It's a shark tank that is focused directly on issues that we need. So it's not just a good business model, it's a good business model that solves our biggest challenges. So the, um, the affordable housing um, issue is gonna be a focus at the state level again this session. And um, I know we, we haven't talked before this segment, but I'm gonna just guess that you know that the bill being filed in the Senate tackles a lot of the affordable housing issue with some ideas. Um, and I, I, are you familiar at all with that bill? Yeah, we've received the announcement. We're very excited. We think squarely focusing on it at the state is going to be a help to us. Of course, we are already very creative and also applying local resources. So we welcome additional investments from the state. We welcome streamlined processes, and uh, we're going to be uh, adopting or, or supporting uh, passage of those items that are going to assist us to expedite putting those units in the ground. So I want to get uh, your perspective on a couple of specifics out of the bill and which may or may not affect the county at all, but one that really um, kind of caught my attention was a ban on rent control. And I don't really know what that will look like yet. I don't think anybody does until you see the bill. But if the state bans the local ability for rent control, how does that affect uh, counties' um, efforts mm -hmm. in keeping housing affordable in its units? We have not implemented rent control in Miami-Dade County. There is an existing state law that provides a pathway for a county to do that. It's very um, uh, detailed and uh, difficult to achieve, and it's not a path that we are prioritizing. And also um, state oversight of local zoning laws, and that would, you know, zoning is height restrictions or density. How would state oversight of those local laws affect the county. Yes. So in general, we oppose preemption. We have a standing item at the county and the county commission with our lobbying team to fight efforts to control uh, those decisions that we think should be local. Certainly zoning and land use are matters of local control, not only for the county, but for the cities. So um, we think we're doing a great job and we want to do that going forward. So we'll be seeking to assure that we have the independence that we need and have enjoyed responsibly for yeah. our zoning and use. Yeah, Mayor, you know, um, and part of that law is an online condo dashboard for homeowners associations. This is in the wake of the Surfside building collapse. There are these new laws. Anyone who's kind of plugged in knows there is going to be a seismic change for people who live in condominiums, mm -hmm. and that is a sizable number of Miami-Dade County residents. Um, you know, it's going to be more expensive. The reserves are going to be mandated. Have you and, and your administration tackled any... Uh, any of that yet and put plans in place for what may be some real hardships suddenly for condo owners? 
Let me just be clear, Glenna, we have been the most aggressive, the most successful at putting housing that people can afford, workforce as well as affordable housing, and also protecting people. So we immediately put into place some additional safeguards at the county beyond and in, in advance of, of what the state has done. Uh, we welcome the state to follow our example. We already have a dashboard. It's going live in just a, a couple of weeks. We've already trained our condo associations about it, and it will provide important transparency. We also have some funds available for those uh, where there's a shortfall uh, for reserves because we know for some of our older buildings uh, and some of the residents that are less able to afford uh, the necessary reserves that they're going to need some help. Yeah, we're going to be watching that really closely. Mayor, I know you spin a lot of plates and the state of the county had a lot of components to it. And I'm glad you were spending a few minutes with us to zero into the housing portion. And I know we'll be seeing you a lot on everything else as things go on. Thanks so much. Always look forward to it. Thank you, Glenna. All right, we will be right back. QR code right there with your phone and it will take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And you are a big part of this program. You can connect easily on social media. So easy to find. Follow, reach out at Glenna WPLG on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you know we are online 24-7. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Remember, keep in touch.